0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Just a quick uh, programming note. uh, PBS's Frontline has a special special tonight on Trump's carnage, and I I make a couple of uh, cameo appearances. It looks like it's really, really well done. Uh, So uh, where are we at today? Uh, Over the last... uh, 18 hours. We had the House delivering the impeachment articles to the United States Senate. So that apparently is going to be happening. We may have a vote relatively soon on the Senate, whether they're going to what they're going to do about that. And um, the reconciliation is back because they made a deal on the filibuster. So what was your best memory of bipartisan cooperation? We have two guests today. James Wolner who is uh, has been described he wants me to read this, actually. He wants me to read the roll call once described as an all around procedural badass when it comes to uh, the United States Senate and Jonathan Chait from New York Magazine. So, guys, can we, can we just do Nikki Haley first? And sure. I'm I, 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 yeah. OK. And I mean that with all due respect, Nikki Haley, who uh, up until like five minutes ago had pretensions to be a stateswoman, former governor of a. You know, a successful governor of South Carolina, clearly a presidential candidate, lots of pretensions to be one of these serious thinkers, lots of gravitas. Uh, she's weighing in now on Donald Trump and impeachment. This is what she had to say on Laura Ingram's show last night.
1: The actions of the president
0: post-January 6th, weren't, uh, post-election day, were not great. What happened on January 6th was not great. Does he deserve to be impeached? Absolutely not. It's so a you'd vote against impeachment? That
2: Yeah, you'd vote against impeachment. Absolutely,
0: so that's where you would part ways. Kick him out the door.
2: You would part ways with, uh, for instance, Mitt Romney, who will be voting. It sounds like for impeachment, for for to to convict. At least it sounds
0: that way. I don't even think there's a basis for impeachment. I mean, the idea that they're even bringing this up—they didn't even have a hearing in the House. Now they're going to turn around and bring about impeachment, yet they say they're for unity. I mean, they they beat him up before he got into office. They're beating him up after he leaves office. I mean, at some point, I mean, give the man a break. I mean, move on. If you truly are about moving on, move on. The idea that they're going to do impeachment, that's not going to bring our country together. That's only dividing our country. Yeah, Nikki Haley, what's a little sedition? Give the man a break. I mean, who hasn't tried to overthrow another branch of government? Dead cop. Can we just move on, you know? Yeah, what happened on January 6th was not great. Not great. Okay, so uh, Jonathan Chait, I-, I need to give you due credit because um, I don't know if you saw my newsletter yesterday. I did. That, that that I I admitted that I wish I had come up with the Prague Spring analogy, but you did. So I want to give you props again. That that little window of maybe Republicans stepping back and going, oh my goodness, maybe we should reevaluate our sycophantic loyalty to Donald Trump. That 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 closed that's closed uh, hard, hasn't it? That window, yeah, is
1: that's over. You can look at Haley. You can look at Marco Rubio. Um, they can all see where the base is and what they want, and it's and it's settled on this anti anti Trump line. They're not saying that it was good to send the mob in, you know, he was, he was a naughty boy. Um, but, but, but the real concentration of their energy is on complaining about the, the people who are going after him. Um, he's a victim. Um, it's not like Benghazi, which justifies, you know, years and years of investigations, um, uh, over some talking points that the state department may have gotten wrong in the moments after, uh, a mob, uh, attack the consulate this is a different mob in the united states and there was no confusion whatsoever but we we've 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 really settled it completely and and we need to all move on
0: yeah i mean look it's it's like Three weeks ago, right? Less than th- what? Three weeks ago, <laughs> that <Three weeks ago. laughs> you have the, the the Capitol breach for the first time since the war of eighteen twelve. Um, yeah. You had a dead police officer, yeah. members of Congress being hunted, mobs walking through the hall saying "hang, uh, uh, hang Mike Pence." Uh, you you <laughs> you have this you know violent, deadly, destructive act, um, and and Nikki Haley and others going, How can we just move on? I mean, can we move on? I, it, it really, the, the, the speed with which they have adapted is incredible. I, lo- I love this uh, this tweet from uh, Gerald uh, Beer. Is that how it's pronounced? He said, you know, it's, it's imagine a, a, a lawyer in front of a judge. Your honor, my, cl- my the, the man that my client is accused of killing is literally dead. A trial is simply going to inflame things further. And I ask you, will it bring the dead man back? It will not. I mean, that's really, we, can we just move on?
1: Well, not only that, it wasn't just the, the mob insurrection. Um, Donald Trump had a fairly wide-ranging effort to try to overturn the election to give himself a second unelected term in office. And we don't necessarily know the full extent of his efforts because pieces of it are still coming out. We just learned over the weekend that he was pressuring the Department of Justice and had a man picked out on the inside to basically overthrow the DOJ leadership and try to file suit to to pressure Georgia to overturn its its electors we know um, that he pressured Georgia's Secretary of State because he secretly recorded and released the conversation of of, of Trump lobbying Georgia to, to basically cancel out its election and, and make Trump the, the winner Um This stuff is still leaking out. We don't know that we've even seen seen the end of it
0: now this is unprecedented in american history that you had a sitting president of the united states attempting to over overturn a free and fair election as you as you point out and i've made this point over and over again it, it's not just the words that he spoke on january 6th it's the entire big lie which he propagated for months his attempt to uh you know Im- imply that there was massive fraud uh that that uh, the voting machines were rigged all of which were debunked uh, trying to pressure state legislators into avoiding the elector, the the election, the popular vote. Uh, trying to intimidate other officials, all of all of that, um, inflaming, uh, inflaming the country to the point where we have tens of millions of people that doubt the legitimacy of the election. But what I find fascinating is is the is this new emerging Republican line that the, the trial, but what did Marco Rubio said? You know, the trial is, um, is, is like taking a bunch of gasoline and pouring it on top of the fire. Well, so basically the implication here is that holding Trump accountable is more polarizing than Trump's actual behavior right. that yes, it's pouring gasoline on the fire. Who lit the freaking fire? And are we supposed to just ignore that fire? It's like, he's just going to walk away from the fire.
1: No, I mean, it's, it's more, it's more the opposite. I think I, I think the fact that Republicans are now opposing impeachment almost um, to a man and woman um, shows that Donald Trump is still very influential over the party, which is evidence that they need to hold him accountable. But the fact that they need to hold him accountable shows why they also can't hold him accountable.
0: Yeah, you you wrote the speech yesterday. Republicans have decided not to rethink anything. What if they held a GOP civil war and nobody came? In retrospect, it's, yeah, same old, same old. This is what the Republican Party has done. They've developed the muscle memory of of rationalization. They're going to wrestle with their conscience and their conscience will lose yes. again. But uh, it it happened very, very quickly. And I mean, I, I suppose, you know, part of it is it is kind of amazing that you have this defeated, disgraced, uh, twice impeached president. He's sitting down in Mar-a-Lago sulking, and yet he still has this iron grip on the um, on the Republican Party. I was going to say something gross and vulgar, but I thought I decided not to since this is going to be a higher class podcast today. I mean, it, it is it is extraordinary that despite everything, that nothing has really changed.
1: You know, the one thing that I thought might have changed it was Trump losing because that was a big part of his proposition to the party was that you've been losing and I'm going to, you've been losing for years. They feel like they've been losing for years, even though they haven't really been losing for years. They feel like they've been losing for years. So, and the reason you've been losing for years is that your leaders are too weak and I'm going to come along and be strong and I'm going to do tough, maybe unethical, and dirty things, but we're going to win because of me. That was a big part of his appeal to the to the republican base and i thought losing the election would would shake that but it really hasn't because he really sold them on this idea that he didn't lose the election at all that was the thing that that that, that i thought was the chance to to break it um but but what 70% buy into the idea that he didn't really lose the election and somehow uh, somehow he, him being cheated out of a rightful win is just as good as him being a win
0: yeah, Jim, I want to get to the, the, the deal on the, on, the, uh, on the filibuster and the, the Senate decision on going ahead with the trial. Now, is, is there a possibility that there's going to be a an early vote on the constitutionality of the trial? Uh, did I hear you correctly?
2: Well, one of the things that I'm hearing, the, the House delivered the articles yesterday, as we all know, under Senate rules, which we all know, I'm sure, the trial starts today at 1 p.m. Well, they've postponed that to February 8th for opening mm-hmm. arguments. However, in the meantime, there's this debate that's happening over whether or not this is constitutional. Can the Senate actually do this? And I would expect and I would hope that the Senate would would have that vote and have that debate, preferably not in that order, very soon. Um, and I've, I'm hearing some rumblings that it may happen uh, today. It could happen this week, but I would fully expect it to happen prior to February eighth.
0: So, so that somebody would make a motion, what to not have the trial? You know, Mr. Mr. President, uh, point of order: we can't have a trial of somebody who's left. Is that will it be like that? Well, this has happened before, okay. and to postpone the trial will
2: require unanimous consent, and. When you ask for unanimous consent, other senators can say, well, I would like to have a debate and a vote on whether or not it is constitutional to convict a private citizen for charges against them when they were in office. And then the Senate will debate that. And this is what we saw, uh, particularly in some of the past uh, impeachment cases. And there's no reason why the Senate can't debate it today. Now, one thing I do want to emphasize, though, is that the question is not whether or not it's constitutional to have a trial I don't know anybody who disputes that the question is whether or not the Senate can convict at the end of that trial someone who is not subject to impeachment
0: okay let, let's let's hold that that discussion for a little bit later because I, because I want to get into that in in some detail but but I want to update where we're at right now because um, late last night the Senate came to a deal on organizing the Senate it's a 50/50 Senate with the vice president breaking the tie, um, we had this very weird holdup where Mitch McConnell was saying that he was not going to allow the essentially would not allow the Democrats to become the majority unless they would agree as part of the organizing document that they would never abolish the filibuster. Well, now he's uh, backed off on that um, saying that, uh, let me just make sure I have this, Uh, the the, the Washington Post reporting, uh, the McConnell uh, signaled he would step back from an ultimatum over Senate rules, uh, said in a statement, he was ready to move forward with a power sharing accord, um, basically because he had a statement from two Democrats that uh, they would not vote to uh, ever end the filibuster. This would be uh, Kirsten Cinema and is Cinema and uh, Joe Manchin said they would not vote against it. So, first of all, you you know, uh, John, John, before we get into the procedure of this, Jonathan, you know, where do you come down on the filibuster? Because I, I mean, I, I I do think that this is not a dead issue, right. and it's going to come up again and again and again. Um, there are a lot of people who would say, you know. Be careful what you wish for, because if the Democrats do abolish the filibuster to get a lot of their legislation through, what's going to happen when you have a Trumpian majority in the Senate again sometime? So where do you come down on the filibuster?
1: Well, the thing is, I find that argument a little bit odd because we did have a Trumpian majority in the Senate. Republicans held unified control of government 2017, 2018, and the filibuster wasn't stopping any of what they wanted to do. Um, their agenda was moving through other channels. They they passed the tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts, uh, through budget reconciliation, which can't be filibustered. They tried to repeal Obamacare through the same channel. Um, they confirmed all their judges, which can also be done with 50 votes. And in everything else, they did through executive orders. So um, I don't, you know, I think we tested this proposition, and I think we have an answer to it.
0: So right now, it, it does look like uh, Biden and the Democrats are going to move ahead using reconciliation for a lot of this. So they are, even without abolishing the filibuster, it looks like they are going to get you know some of their major legislation pushed through. Do you disagree sure. with that? Um, are there too many sure. divisions? Is there something that they will, something really important to progressives in this country they will not be able to do because of the filibuster?
1: Yes, you can't do any democratic reforms. You can't do voting rights. You can't do anti-gerrymandering. You can't give statehood to D.C. Um, you can only do changes to taxes and spending. So, just to zoom out for 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 a moment, we don't have um, a nor a regular or uniform supermajority requirement through the Senate. We have um, is a patchwork system where some things can be done with a majority vote, and some things need a supermajority. And I don't think anyone would actually say that the pattern, that there's any logic to what we can and can't pass with a majority, right? You you can, you can put judges on courts to a lifetime appointment, and those judges have complete and total authority to say what laws Congress can pass. So they have authority over Congress, and that can be done with a simple majority. That's irreversible, right? You can right. you can make ch- changes in taxes and spending levels with a majority vote. Um, but you can't keep but but keep but the government the complete government budget for some reason is outside that. So if you want to just keep government open, you need 60 votes otherwise just to keep the lights on and the government pre- prevent a shutdown, you need 60 votes. Um, you can do changes in taxes and spending levels with 50. Uh, but you can't do other changes, so it's 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 very crazy quilt. So we need to be clear that the filibuster has been pared back and only applies to certain kinds of of measures that pass through. through the okay,
0: so th- this just means we have to keep James Wallner on speed dial to sort all of this out. Sure. James, you had a very interesting comment about um, this 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 late night deal. Uh, th- this is what you wrote uh, twelve hours ago: the filibuster's fate will be decided in the context of a specific debate not abstractly or in the context of a debate uh, over adding a few Democrats to the Senate's committees. So you don't think that this issue is over? You don't think that this has been sealed by this deal? Well, we have two things to tell us that it's not.
2: And I think it's a fabulous point that the filibuster has not been an issue over the past two to four years for Senate Republicans. They just haven't tried to do anything that could be filibustered. But the question is, well, what do, we, what do we know? Common sense tells us that when you are confronted with a vote as a member or as a constituent whose member is confronted with a vote, that vote is what matters. And the underlying issues at play in that vote matter. And it doesn't matter what what Joe Manchin says in a press release right now. Mm. What matters is in the heat of a public debate when which his party and his constituents do or do not want him to do something. That's the time that it actually matters. And, and we not only just have common sense, we also have experience. Harry Reid gave Mitch McConnell multiple gentlemen's agreements that he would not nuke the filibuster. Now, I'm not defending McConnell or not defending Reid. What I'm saying is situations change. And Reid would point to McConnell's change behavior and his failure to uphold his part of the bargain. And he would then say, that's why I ended up going and doing this with my fellow Democrats. And McConnell doesn't even have, to my knowledge, a gentleman's agreement with, with these two senators. It's just that he pointed to their press releases that they had already issued in the past and said, hey, you know they're gonna they're with
0: us. I won. It's the classic
2: case of moving the
0: goalpost. Isn't it hard though for them to flip flop on this issue at this point? So let's say that there's some some issue they care really deeply about. Maybe it's the COVID nineteen relief bill or some other you know fiscal uh, stimulus bill and. You're, you're saying that, that on that, they may change their position and vote to eliminate the filibuster to get that through. But I mean, that that that's still politically awkward. There's a political price to be paid, particularly if you represent Arizona and West Virginia in the Senate.
2: Well, the the political price to be paid is with voters like me who vote on the rules and thinking that they should be enforced until they're changed. I don't think that a lot of people are going to wake up in the morning and say well they issued this press release in reference to a senate rule at the beginning of the congress and now in the midst of this debate that may give me 5000 dollars in my pocket or may give me unemployment insurance or may give me a different healthcare system that i want I, I think it's going to be weighed differently and we also have experience to demonstrate this republicans when i worked in the senate republicans practically tattooed on their forehead that the nuclear option was evil it was the work oh, of I satan that. the yeah. devil himself it literally, all it took was a different president in office, and then next thing you know, they're using the nuclear option.
0: You, you know, Jonathan, I, I think that's an interesting point because I, I I think he's right about that. The number of voters who actually care about this is vanishingly small, right. and I think that's a perfect illustration because I remember that oh, the nuclear. This is the end of American democracy as we know it. Ah, no, we really want that, so let's do it. And then they did it first. Sorry to interrupt, well, but they did it first, so now we're we're
2: we're going to do it right.
1: Well, I think this whole phrase that the press began using, the nuclear option, I think has been invalidated. The whole... The whole premise of it was it was so terrible or horrible that no one would ever do it, and the fallout would be so devastating that no one would ever do it again. But it's been done by by both parties, and it was basically a one-day story. I think everyone's proved that it's not a nuclear option. It's just a, it's just a tool that that's sitting there being wait, waiting to be used and, and will be used. And I, and I think at some point, and maybe this year, maybe next year, maybe 10 years from now, we're going to go to a full majority rule Senate. It's just a question of, of which party decides to do it.
0: So, Jonathan, obviously Joe Biden wants to go big. I mean, here, here's the the interesting paradox of, of of Bidenism is that he, you know, wants to be bipartisan. He wants to be a unifier. He opposed the abolition of the filibuster, and yet he wants to have an FDR sized agenda. Right. So. How do you think that's going to play out? Is he is is it all going to be through reconciliation? Well, just give me a, a sense about that, because there does appear to be a little bit of tension, if not contradiction, in those approaches.
1: Oh, absolutely. There's absolutely no way you can have a an FDR size presidency and, and keep the legislative filibuster in place. Um, you. You're not even going to get half of the things that Joe Biden campaigned on with with the filibuster in place. You can get some things done through budget reconciliation, but you can only do changes to existing tax and spending levels. Um, so, you know, I think I think Biden is it's very hard to determine how much of Biden saying that. Is, is real conviction that he can get in the room with these Republicans and get them bored, or if it's him saying what voters like to hear, because that is a very popular thing to say, and I think a lot of voters, and certainly the swing voters in the middle, tend to be low information and tend to not have a very clear understanding of the different principles the two parties hold in the and the. And the rational reasons the parties have for disagreeing. So a lot of these voters just think they're they're disagreeing because they're immature or they're or they're being petty and they should be able to get along. And they don't really understand that there's real serious basis for those fights. So I think to some extent Biden is, is is kind of pandering to voter ignorance by pretending he can get in there and, and everyone will start getting along.
0: So what will, uh, James, what, what will McConnell's strategy be going forward? I mean, he was very, very clear back in 2009 that his goal was to make Barack Obama a one term president. I don't sense the full frontal obstructionism yet, but give me your sense of how he's of how he's going to play the cards that he has, because, of course, he's got quite a few cards still. I'm not sure he has
2: respectfully that many cards or that he ever had that many cards, to be honest with you. And I think McConnell's rhetoric in 2009 was one thing. I think his actions were a different thing. And in 2009, before his relationship with Harry Reid, the majority leader at the time, fell apart they were essentially managing the Senate together in cooperation. And they were each tasked by one another with keeping their knuckleheads, their liberals and their conservatives in line and not disrupting the Senate so much. And I, that kind of fell away, at least the cooperative aspect of it as the years went by. But McConnell has clamped down on the Senate. He has clamped down on the Senate. He has prevented votes in the Senate Reid did the same thing. I expect Schumer to do the same thing. And the reason why I believe is that the two parties, it's not just the filibuster. You can get rid of the filibuster. Senate Republicans aren't going to start debating lots of legislation anymore. Why? Because they don't agree on that legislation and they're unwilling to allow bills to come up for a vote that fracture their party dramatically. And I fully expect the Democrats, I would hope it wouldn't be the case, but I expect them to
0: manage the chamber in the same way. Okay. in In the last few minutes, while you and I have been speaking, I'm I'm noticing a a tweet. Um, the McConnell just said, "If this majority went scorched earth, this body would come to a screeching halt. We have never seen. So, what is he saying? What is he threatening? Well, I mean, is he referring to the past two years of the
2: Senate's experience? Because it seems to me that when it comes to legislation, the Senate has pretty much been stuck in a screeching halt now for for quite some time. Um, but it's it's bluster, I believe. It's beating your chest in reality and it's signaling to your own base and signaling to your own side that you're tough. So that when you can then turn around and cut a deal, you can point to that bluster and say I tried. This is I call it the Senate two step. McConnell is really good at it. He is very good at this kind of stuff. Think about two years ago, he gave an interview, I forget where, and they asked him, what do you think about the 114th Congress or the 115th Congress? And he said, oh, it was historic, historic democratic obstruction, but it was the best Congress ever in my whole career, most conservative Congress ever. He said that those things don't go together. But but what McConnell does and what most senators do is that he deflects blame for outcomes when they differ from what he led people to expect while simultaneously taking credit for the fact that they didn't turn out worse.
0: Okay. So Jonathan, and it requires setting the stage. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Okay. So John, what is your take on, on, on Mitch McConnell? What, what I mean? He's, he's done with Trump. I don't think he's going to vote to convict in yeah. the end. I mean, obviously he, he sort of, you know, had that out there. Um, um, I, well, just give me give me give me give me your take sure. on that, uh, whether so, you agree with 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 James that that he's that he's just bluffing.
1: I think McConnell's goal is to keep the rules in place. I don't think he wants some liberals say he. As soon as he has power, he'll blow up the filibuster. I don't think he wants that. I think McConnell realizes that the current rules are very advantageous to his side. He can do the things he wants to do with 50 votes. He can confirm all the judges with 50. He can cut taxes with 50. He can defund social programs with 50. All the things that Democrats want to do, or at least many of them, require 60 votes. So he wants to keep the rules in place that... that, that his, his stuff can pass and the Democrats votes can't pass. I mean, think about how hard it was to pass Obamacare. Uh, it took decades to yeah. put that coalition together. They finally got 60 votes and then they were one vote away from, from eliminating it with 50 votes. So he loves these rules and he just wants to keep these in place and he wants to scare everybody out of changing them.
0: The one one is because I know you have to go, Jonathan. On the trajectory of the Republican Party, um, going back to this, they 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 had this moment, this moment where they could have moved past Trumpism. They had yeah. an off-ramp, a very easy off-ramp. They could have, I mean, it could have been a a moment of real reformation and restoration. And and that and it and they decided and they decided not to. And it's it feels like it's gotten even worse since then. The, I mean, the, it's not breaking news that the Republican grassroots is completely Trumpy and, you know, getting a little bit crazier. But but also what's been happening in the Senate. So yesterday we found out that Rob Portman's not running for reelection. That joins um, Burr, who is not running for reelection in North Carolina. Uh, oh. Pat Toomey is not running in Pennsylvania. So Josh Krashauer tweeted, here's the nightmare scenario for Senate Republicans that next time around in Pennsylvania the Republican nominee could be Scott Perry who's very trumpy uh, in North Carolina it could be Laura Trump in Arizona the GOP Senate nominee might be uh, Kelly Ward Chemtrails Kelly uh, and in Ohio it might be Jim Jordan now that's a worst case scenario but it's completely plausible so you're 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 seeing more of the grown up more reasonable quote unquote reasonable Republicans leaving and it's certainly possible that that we will have more Ted Cruz's, uh, Tommy Tuberville's, Josh Hawley's, Marshall Blackburn's in the Senate, doesn't it? I, mean, I, think going it that does. way.
1: I think it does, but I also want to sound a note of caution here, because Please. the the political wins are going to be at Republicans' back. Uh, they're going to be in opposition. Opposition parties usually do well in the midterm elections. Um, and, you, and you could just go back to 2010, when the, the Republicans... Made the same kinds of decisions in a lot of their Senate races. They they just burned their best candidates, and and instead of nominating the most electable candidates, they they nominated a, the most extreme right wingers who could who who were put up in the primaries. And in some races, they lost as a result. I think in Delaware, they they had an easy win that they turned into a, into a loss. But in some of those states, the, the extreme conservative just won anyway. And I think that's probably going to happen in a lot of these races too. Jim Jordan might lose in Ohio because he's too extreme, but it's a very Republican state. It's a midterm election. He would probably win that race.
0: Well, no, I actually, I actually think that it's not only plausible those would be the candidates, but with the exception of say Kelly Ward, I could certainly imagine some of them being elected to the Senate for exactly the reasons you said, which means then that the Senate majority slash minority becomes even more Whatever you want to call it, wooly.
1: the big picture is this has been going on for decades. The Republican Party yeah. has been moving to the right for decades. Trump accelerated it, but he didn't cause it. And and the movement is going to continue after he's gone.
0: You say moving to the right. Yeah. I, I wonder whether those old categories really apply. I mean, maybe we don't have time to get into all of this, but you know, I mean, is is you know, is Kelly Ward really to the right? Of say Jeff Flake, I mean she's to the something of Jeff Flake, but but is, is does does right left really capture the qualitative difference of these candidates and the and the movement that you're talking about?
1: Yes, I mean I, I I think it does. I think if you line up, there are a lot of ways to answer this question. You could answer it historically um, by looking at uh, the conservative movement um, and its relationship to segregationists and the John Burke Society, which I think is more. We've argued about this before, but I think it's, mm-hmm. it's a tighter relationship than a lot of traditional conservatives always like to admit to themselves. Um, but I think if you just look at the simple voting records of just just measure, you know who's on who's 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 by the simple ACA ratings, the traditional measures you use to to plot who's to the right, and who's to the left. Um, the Trumpiest candidates in Congress have the most right-wing voting records. So I think okay, voting Josh
0: voting Josh, is, Josh Hawley is Josh Hawley. To the right of say uh, others, I'm, I'm saying that is Josh Hawley was out there saying yes we ought to send out these two thousand dollar checks, yeah. yes we ought to have government control over the private sector, yes we ought to do all of these things, yes I am the I am I'm the populist. In in what sense is he more conservative than other Republicans? You you That's follow right. what I'm getting? You're here? Okay,
1: you're right. No, you raise a good point there. I think Hawley is a little bit of an outlier there that he's that he's that he's decided to align with liberals at least rhetorically. And in some sense, substantively on on some of these issues, but I think he's got right wing stances on on other issues where he lines up more with. So he lines up with Ted Cruz on um, on authoritarianism, um, but but on economics he would he would break with the party.
0: Yeah and 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 of course this is the one of the phenomena that I find interesting is the degree to which republicans and conservatives have embraced this notion of being victims you know that that they are out to get us i mean it wasn't that long ago that victim culture was we associated it with people on the left but the right has has made it i mean absolutely central to their identity i mean you listen to Josh Hawley or even listen to Nikki Haley you know Donald Trump give him a break because Right now, with the capital trashed after this attempted coup, a dead police officer, it's Donald Trump is the victim. Uh, now that that, I don't know if that's traditional conservative. Maybe it is. Uh, it certainly has things in line with other various other uh, you know, right wing movements that are associated with different regimes. Which I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but you know what I mean. That you know they are coming to get you. Um, I alone can protect you against these threats. I mean that that's that seems to be more um of the of the right wing as opposed to some of the more small government libertarian conservative ideas that some of us had thought were in the ascendancy in the Republican party but we were obviously wrong weren't we
1: I think so and you know I think this is this is a really big really important and profound topic and maybe we should just do a yeah, right. different discussion about it but let me just let me just because I can't resist. <laughs> let, let me just add one little point, and maybe we'll draw it out. And if you want to debate it, we'll do it next time. Um, I think in the seed of conservatism, in the conservative movement, is, is an important authoritarian idea. And, and it's, it's a fear that the majority would outnumber the, the wealthy minority at the ballot box and redistribute their money and that this was a threat to liberty, and that this threat to liberty justified clamping down on democracy. Because otherwise... Well,
0: that, that, was, that was a founding principle in the Constitution, wasn't it? I mean, that, that no. goes way back. No. Hmm? No, I don't see
1: the Constitution as being designed to pr- pr- protect the majority from progressive taxation. Or the no, well, not, not progressive
0: taxes. taxation. But, That's what but, I but, mean. Is that if you Look
1: at what... What, conser- what the conservative movement was saying back in the in the 50s and 60s and in against the New Deal it really was this fear of if you let everyone vote you know the, the basically the rich are going to have their their wealth taxed away by the, the the masses and we have to prevent this from happening so there's a very in my opinion a deep fear of democracy embedded in the conservative movement and basically what's happened over time is that the conservative movement overtook the republican party completely and its view of democracy became the republican party's view of democracy but may, may, maybe this is a whole other discussion for us no
0: no I, and, I, and i do want to have this a little bit more but there's no question about it that that maybe and also i think that's becoming more and more overt and you'll see it more where clearly you have Republicans who believe that the big flaw of the 2020 election is that too many people got to vote, we made it too easy to vote, and therefore we need to restore the integrity of the ballot box, which means to find a way to, to shrink the electorate, which is right. rather remarkable position for a major party. In this in this day and age, Jonathan, I know you have to run because you have some writing. Um, but but let's 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 make a date to to re re um to, to reexamine this because because I, yep. I'm I'm trying I'm trying to work through some of this myself. I'll be honest with you.
1: Yeah, I would love to hash this out with you again, Charlie.
0: All right, James, I want to circle back to a question that you raised a little bit earlier. This whole question of the impeachment trial, since you're you're, since you're our our Senate guy. Um, you, you said before that there's no question in your mind that um, the Senate can hold a a trial for someone who's already gone. I mean, that that seems to be emerging as, as one of the big critiques that, look, Donald Trump is no longer in office. What's the point of doing this? Plus, the Constitution doesn't allow you to do this. So what you know, how, how do you see this debate playing out whenever it takes place in the Senate?
2: Well, let's go back to the clip you played from Nikki Haley at at the beginning of the podcast when she says there's no basis for impeachment and she talks about unity. Well, those are the wrong questions. They may be relevant questions. They may be applicable. People may care about them. But ultimately, the first question is whether or not Donald Trump can be convicted in a Senate impeachment trial. And I believe, and I've been looking, I've looked through the Constitution, I looked through the federal debates of the, I mean, the debates of the Federal Convention of 1787, I've looked all through the ratifying debates, I've looked all through the historical practice that the Senate has had on this topic, and I have found zero precedence or evidence in support of the proposition That the framers wanted to give the Senate the power to convict private individuals without a trial in this country. What do you mean without a trial? Well, the Constitution is very explicit that all trials shall have a jury with the exception of impeachment. Yeah. And a Senate impeachment trial doesn't have a jury. Well, the the Senate is the jury. Well, the Senate is the jury, the judge, the witness, and everything else in between. I mean, it's you know, it's a political trial, and Luther Martin, when he stands up and he defends uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase in his impeachment trial, addresses this spot on. He's like, "Well, what are we? Are you saying that all of a sudden now, any individual, because they happen to have held the deputy under third assistant secretary for this particular department? He didn't say that because that didn't exist at the time, but." that they now can be impeached for the rest of their life and convicted and barred from running for office ever again. And then somehow that creates a new distinction between a public office holder, a private citizen, and then we have this new weird category of formers.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, there's a precedent for this. 1876, Secretary of War William Belknap And he tried to uh, avoid impeachment by by resigning just a few minutes before the House was going to vote. And the House impeached him anyway. And then the Senate had to, you know, deal with exactly this question. Can we try and convict someone who's no longer in office? And they concluded it had the power to try, convict and disqualify former uh, officers. So um, there's a very clear precedent, isn't there? Well, no. The, in, in that trial, the Senate concluded
2: that it had the authority to try the case, just as it did with William Blunt, and just as it has whenever the House House's Senate articles of impeachment. The Senate has to have a trial. And that's what they voted on. If, if you look at the resolution, it says, we have jurisdiction to hold a trial. Right. The, the vote was not on whether or not we have jurisdiction to convict. And then right after that, somebody stood up and says, this vote was only by a simple majority, incidentally. It didn't clear the two-thirds threshold. So even if it were to convict, it wouldn't have succeeded. And the Constitution is very explicit on this point. The Senate has the power to set its own rules under Article One, Section 5, Clause 2. However, those rules cannot violate explicit constitutional provisions. This is The Supreme Court says this in U.S. v. Ballin. And so we know that impeachment requires a two-thirds vote. So not only did this precedent not set what we think it's set in terms of conviction, but also if it were to have set conviction by a simple, you can't, the Senate can't decide to change the constitution by a simple majority okay.
0: vote. Okay. So let's, let's, let's examine in some detail why you are completely wrong on this. Okay. okay. So first of all, um, I have here this, this letter signed by 150 legal scholars, um, including Stephen Calabresi, the co-founder of the Federalist Society, Charles Freed, who was solicitor general under Reagan Uh, now an advisor to the Harvard uh, chapter of the Federalist Society. Uh, Ilya Soman, a professor of George Mason from George Mason, uh, also at the Cato Institute. And and, and Brian Kalt, who is a law professor at Michigan State and is considered the leading scholar on this specific Mm -hmm. question of whether former officials can be impeached. And they say that it is they disagree on a lot of things, but they say, that our carefully considered view of the law leads all of us to agree the constitutional Constitution permits the impeachment, the conviction, and the disqualification of former officers, including presidents. And basically, their argument is that the Constitution um, grants Congress, you know, the impeachment power, uh, I'm sorry, the impeachment power granted in the Constitution has two aspects. The first is removal. The second is disqualification. And they would argue the impeachment power has to be read as to give full effect to both aspects of this power. And so they're saying that nothing in the provision authorizing impeachment for removal limits in any way impeachments to situation where it accomplishes removal from office. And let me read this. Indeed, such a reading would thwart and potentially nullify a vital aspect of the impeachment power the power of the Senate to impose disqualification from future office as a penalty for conviction in order to give full effect to both Article one and Article two's language with respect to impeachment. Therefore, the correct conclusion is that former officers remain subject to the impeachment power after leaving office for purposes of permitting imposition of the punishment of disqualification. Because if you don't have that, then you have uh, no way of. Of uh, of holding people accountable for some of the acts of office if they if they resign or leave office. So anyway, there is there some disagreement, James. But uh, there's a lot of smart people, and I and I
2: very reluctantly and very hesitatingly disagree with smart people, but. I still have to disagree here, and I will add to that list a uh, Keith Whittington, who is a fabulous scholar, someone I look up to, someone who I take their opinion very, very seriously. He wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago, where he argued, just like you have said, that the Senate has the power to convict. I think he's wrong, but I would highly recommend your listeners uh, to to read that op-ed. It's a fabulous op-ed. I think it's wrong, but it's fabulous. The problem with this is it's reason based, like analysis. And ultimately, there is no evidence. They can't, they just, well, it it has to be this way because X. But they don't actually point to evidence. And they overlook evidence that suggests, and not only suggests, but acknowledges. I mean, James Wilson in the Philadelphia, I mean, in the Pennsylvania uh, Convention uh, to ratify the Constitution, refers to this impeachment power and says, in office. Luther Martin acknowledges that they have to be in office. James Madison in a letter to Edmund Pendleton says in office in a letter to Thomas Jefferson in response to Jefferson saying, well, maybe we're going to impeach a former uh, former senator. Madison says that's a dangerous innovation on the impeachment power. Not only that, the logic of the Constitution seems perfectly clear to me, and the grammar ultimately of Article 2, uh, Section 3, Clause 7, which limits the Senate's judgment to removal from office and disqualification, the way it's written, they're not two independent clauses. That comma that separates before the word and, it doesn't separate two independent clauses. They don't stand on their own. They're not both equally enforced. And to suggest that they are would also incidentally violate the Senate rules, which stipulate that Or not violate, but make them nonsensical, because the Senate rules say once you fail to convict at a super majority mm-hmm. threshold, right, once you, we have this vote on the article of impeachment, and they don't get enough senators to vote for it, it the Senate immediately enters automatically a judgment of acquittal mm-hmm. under the rules. And so now, for this to makes it doesn't really make sense that you can remove somebody who's already been removed. So basically, at this point, the Senate would then turn around and disqualify somebody that they just acquitted. That seems unlikely, right? But, I mean, it, not only unlikely, but it's it's illogical. It's, but it's, you're
0: also ignoring a, a, a key aspect of history here that, that I think is is relevant. And and the and, and the writers of this letter. Pointing out that that when they were drawing up the art, when they were drawing up the articles, the models of impeachment, they obviously drew upon models from from Great Britain. Right. And in you know, at that time, English impeachment was was completely understood to allow for the impeachment trial and conviction of former officials. Um, so, I mean, you know. It, it, can I can I read you from even Jonathan Turley, by the way, who has completely flip-flopped on this issue? He wrote a piece back in 1999 who said, absolutely, of course, and of course, Jonathan Turley being Jonathan Turley has changed his mind. And he wrote, impeachment is demonstrated by Edmund Burke serves a public value in addressing conduct at odds with core values in a society. At a time of lost confidence in the integrity of the government, the conduct of a former official can demand a political response. This response in the form of an impeachment may be more important than a legal response in the form of a prosecution. Regardless of the outcome, the Belknap trial, which we mentioned before, addressed the underlying conduct and affirmed core principles at a time of diminishing faith in government. Absent such a trial, Belknap's rush to resign would have succeeded in barring any corrective political action to counter the damage to the system caused by this conduct. Even if the only penalty is disqualification from future office, the open presentation of the evidence and witnesses represents the very element that was missing in colonial impeachments. Such a trial has a political value that runs vertically as a response to the public and horizontally as a deterrent to the executive branch. And in this letter they say look the framers did not design the constitution's checks and balances to be easily undermined by simply having somebody resign before there was a vote so clearly they 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 anticipated um, a trial out even after someone had left office
2: well, but you have to think about this assumes that one there is no other alternative number 1 and that there's no criminal justice system there's no judiciary there's no provision in the constitution that explicitly says that stuff is not mooted by an impeachment proceeding. So that's the first thing. I think it's not it's not like this is it, guys. Right. The second thing is, well, if you say you can only be impeached when you're in office and if someone resigns to avoid disqualification, well then one you've already succeeded in removing them from office and you've protected the state or them you've protected the polity from them abusing their powers to to hurt it. And then if they ever run for office again, well, then you either defeat them in an election or if they get appointed to an office and then you can impeach them. But this is the English case is very is is very interesting here because in England, the commons could impeach anybody. And then it was a criminal court and an impeachment type proceeding. They could impeach private citizens. And I've not found any limiting principle, uh, you know, uh, there's our proponents of late impeachment will point to article two section four and they'll say, well, yes, it says the president, vice president, all other civil officers of the United States are subject to impeachment. But then they say it implies former because they don't want it. They don't want to go so far as to say all Americans can be impeached without Mm -hmm. a jury. Right. And disqualified. You know, I don't know if you've ever held office before, but if you haven't, you're safe. You can run for office. Congress can't disqualify you in the future. But that if you read former into that section of article two. Well, why can't Donald Trump continue making recess appointments? He's, you know, he, the president shall make recess appointments. The president shall be commander in chief. There's no former in the constitution. It doesn't say that it says the president and Donald Trump is not the president. Mike Pence is no longer this president of the Senate. He's no longer vice president. And this is, we limited what the Congress can do to distinguish it from what the commons could do. And at the time, and there, people will point to the commons, and they'll point to this trial of Warren Hastings, yes. and they'll say that that was happening at the same time. And I'm like, well, it was happening. And they'll say that the delegates talked about it. I'm like, they did talk about it. And they pointed to it, and they said, we need to follow that example. But you have to read the entire section of that debate. So it's George Mason saying, we need to be able to impeach people for the same things that the commons impeached Hastings for, not we need to be able to impeach people at the same time. They're very explicit about the, they were talking
0: about crimes, not timing. Well, you, you made an interesting point where you say this is not the only this is not the only way of dealing with uh, with somebody in office. There are grand juries. There is indictments. There is the criminal justice system. There's the civil justice system. And and quite frankly, um, at one point, I, I suggested figuring that the, the, there would be no conviction or there wouldn't be a t- uh, a, a, you know the opportunity to actually have a trial before he left office. Uh, why not impeach, hold, and then convene a grand jury and then determine whether any law any any laws were broken? And I and I still think that that's a, that's an option. I think that's a legitimate point. However, um, when you say it's not the only thing, the reality is is that impeachment is the only thing that deals with. High crimes and misdemeanors, which is vague, is not necessarily a statutory violation. I don't know where you come down on the on the whether you need to have an actual crime, but there are things like abuses of power, um, lying to the public, that have been in articles of impeachment. For example, Richard Nixon, that would not necessarily be indictable in any other court. In other words, there are political crimes that cannot necessarily be dealt with through through other legal avenues only through this. Would you disagree with that? That may be, but it's important
2: to acknowledge that this isn't a question about what ought to be. The first question should be, what does the Constitution allow us to do? Look, there was a time when the Constitution didn't let women vote. That didn't mean that we shouldn't let women vote. They did the right thing and changed the Constitution to let women vote. And so the but today we don't bother with those things. We just say we're going to read into. And I'm not suggesting you're doing this, but most people read into the constitution whatever they want. And I think this is a great example of that. It's at the end of the day the Senate has limited powers and And no amount of interpretations are going to somehow explode those powers to allow it to do all of these other things i mean we have to i think this is a core principle i mean you mentioned earlier about republicans and, and conservatives, but not only that but also I can think of like mid twentieth century liberals and progressives this is a, This is a core principle of our republic. Do the rules actually
0: matter? So this is fascinating now. So who gets to decide the question that you and I are debating right now? Who ultimately gets to decide this? Well, ultimately, it's the, the people. Yeah, but I mean, in, 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 the, in the near term, who's going to get to decide this? Whether or not the, the Senate has the power to convict? Will it be the Senate itself? Does this go to the Supreme Court? Well, I mean, the, the Supreme Court doesn't have any bearing
2: here, in my opinion, either. I mean, they're not the ruler of America. They're right. one of three co-equal I branches. Guess, I think exactly. This, so, who decides this? Well, this is the thing about the <laughs> Constitution, and yeah. it's really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. It's, there's nobody in charge, and so we have a lot of people with equal claims to be in really? charge. Yeah, so
0: there's, there's nobody in there, charge. So there, there won't be a case Donald J. Trump versus. The president of the Senate to determine what what the Constitution says about the power of the Senate, they can't go to the court?
2: Oh, I fully expect people to go to the courts because we think on both sides that the courts are the final authority and that they're in charge. In reality, the Senate has a role in interpreting the Constitution. The courts have a role. The president has a role. And when they disagree, the people get to pay attention to that disagreement. And ultimately, as Hamilton tells us in Federalist 31, they're the ones that we ultimately have to trust. And right now, I think that because we don't allow these things to come to a head, because we say, well, we don't like what Donald Trump did, so therefore let's impeach him. Yeah, we can convict him too. It doesn't really matter that we don't have any evidence and we're just doing reason-based analysis here, right? We're just saying it it should be this way, so therefore it must be
0: this way. But we can't... I I don't know that anyone's saying that. In fact, fact, I think that the people who are pushing for this believe that there is uh, ample evidence that the president... uh, committed high crimes and misdemeanors I mean yeah, this you know. is
2: not about the crimes and misdemeanors I'm, I'm not even talking about Trump at this point the evidence is whether or not the Constitution or the people who wrote it and ratified it and okay, the I'm Senate sorry. there is there is no precedent for what could happen if the Senate convicts Donald Trump like that has never happened in America before that is unprecedented literally I know we throw that term well, around no, no a lot. that
0: that, no, that, is, that would be unprecedented to, to, because then then uh, he would be disqualified. And of course, he could challenge that by uh, trying to run for office. And then there would be, I mean, that, that's how that would have to be litigated, I guess. Right.
2: But and to talk about political crimes and political, you know, somebody using the power that they have to really harm people and to do things that are subversive of our government. Well, let's go back to the first impeachment trial in the Senate, the very first impeachment trial, William Blunt. He signed the Constitution from North Carolina. He was a senator from Tennessee. The House impeaches him. The Senate the next day expels him. So he's no longer a senator, yet everybody points to this and they say, well, you can't impeach a senator. I'm like, well, he wasn't a senator when they had the trial. He was a private citizen. The Senate ultimately said it didn't have the jurisdiction to go forward with that. But this is the point that matters. The Federalist managers from the House were pushing their luck. They said they're looking around. They're like, well, yeah, they expelled him. But let's actually let's send a signal to all these other Republicans about what's going to happen if they keep saying crazy things. And they wanted to. That was why they were doing it for a political purpose to send a signal to say, you know what, you, we don't like what you say. So therefore, we're going to disqualify you. Yeah. Well, and no then right. and then turn around. You got Jefferson and his Republicans trying to do the same thing to judges. In the early part of the 19th century, I think the last thing we want is conservatives, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, and everybody in between in this country is a Senate and a house using their power in moments of like where they're all agreed to disqualify private individuals from being able to do the one sacred thing that we have in this country, which is to participate in
0: government to govern yourselves. Well, with the exception of the fact that we don't allow convicted felons to run for office, um, I suppose there would be that analogy. Actually, there's something worse than that. Um, And I think it would be that if, in fact, at the end of all of this, um, the constitutional provisions banning, you know, the emoluments um, and, uh, and impeachment become dead letters that there is no um, efficient check I mean that there's no reasonable check on the on the power of the president the president because you know you look back on it and, and a little bit of historical revisionism you know I, I always thought that uh, Gerald Ford did exactly the right thing um, by pardoning Richard Nixon just to put the, it out of the pain but maybe he established the precedent that that presidents can commit crimes without any consequences afterwards that that in fact uh, once you leave office uh, you you are immune from from uh, legal accountability and we certainly know that one of the consequences of the acquittal of Donald Trump last year was to embolden him that rather than um, having him feel that uh, that he needed to clean up his act he felt that he was in fact uh, above the law and I think that there's there's real danger to creating precedents that presidents believe that the laws that govern others do not apply to them. So I guess that would that would be one of the worst case scenarios that we come out of this whole scenario with. Yeah, I mean
2: that's a not a rosy picture, but I would just point out that Congress has been in this game for a very long time now, for you know years and years and years. And it The way that the Congress stands up to the president is by embracing the Constitution, embracing the power of the purse, embracing its legislative responsibilities, not by ignoring the Constitution. And while they claim, many people will claim right now that says, well, this has to be punished and setting aside all the other stuff we've talked about. Well, if the Congress decides to do that, they're undermining the very document, the very principle that they need to check the executive because the Congress, the executive is one person who can stand up and, and rally troops and get like the Twitter and everybody can pay attention to them, whether it's Donald Trump or Andrew Jackson or other people that we have had in our history. The Congress, it has a, it, its power lies in its ability to debate and vote and actually make legitimate decisions. But those things all go out the window. When they start ignoring the Constitution, which I think this effort right now, I mean, look, the trial is fine. And incidentally, the Senate can have an oversight hearing. They can call people in and get witnesses. There's other ways to get information too, but the trial is fine. Nobody's, this Constitution gives the Senate the sole power to try. Yes, but then it limits the judgments. The end of those trials. That's the issue, whether or not the Senate convicts. And I think that's right now, if I would encourage your, your listeners, one, to go read that letter that the 150 scholars wrote, read Brian Colt's fabulous piece. He's a great scholar. Read Keith Whittington and read these people who are arguing in support of this, but then but be critical and ask yourself, where is the actual evidence? Not just the, it, it should be like this because it doesn't make sense and the framers wouldn't have done it any other way, but, but where's the evidence that they did it this way?
0: No, way. I think that, that that's good advice. I guess we're just going to have to uh, agree to disagree on all of this because I think it's uh, ultimately important for Congress, which I think has ceded so many of its uh, responsibilities and authorities that it actually do that it actually does draw a line on something like this. But um, I think it's moot because I don't think there's going to be 17 votes to do it. Um, but that doesn't mean that we we ought not to try. So James, I, I've kept you way past time, but I really appreciate it. Um, and appreciate your insights, even though you're completely wrong on this. Well, I,
2: as always, love coming on and, and talking with you, and especially when we disagree.
0: Which is very, very rare, but it we'll have to r- have you back on very, very soon. James Wallner, uh, again, we really, really appreciate your generosity with, you, with your time this, this morning. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.